You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Organic is a popular term that's thrown around in gardening circles and in this episode we're going to learn about what it actually means, why we might consider making the switch to an organic approach and how to practically use this philosophy in our gardening practices. Our guests are Linda and Paul of Green Life Soil Co., an organic soil and amendment company in Perth that creates some fabulous products that my business partner Ben Sims, who's a board member for the Landscape Industry Association of Western Australia, loves and uses in his landscaping business. G'day guys, welcome to the show. Welcome. You're welcome. So can you start off by telling us what does the term organic actually mean, guys? Well, it, it depends really, different things to different people. Uh, and this is why there's always lots of arguments on social media because technically it can mean anything that's carbon-based. Or some people say it's anything that was once living. But in gardening, we tend to refer to it as using things that are, are not synthesised or man-made really. So in its most basic form that we can get, that's really from a gardener's perspective, I think what we like to think of it as. Yeah, I, I kind of like to think of it as working through the natural food chain. So rather than using, say, synthetic fertilizers, which you would, would just dissolve in water and go, you know, attach directly to the, to the soil and then the plants are able to get hold of them, it has to go through, be digested or broken down through the food chain. And so you, that that's how I see. Or some people call that biological farming, that sort of thing. But that's the way I look at it. So you you put a input in that needs to be broken down. The the biology in the soil breaks it down and uh, makes it available to plants. Hmm. So I guess what we're talking about is biological material, such as dying plants, dead plant material, manure, and things like that, as opposed to inorganic. Fertilizers, which are made out of chemicals. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yes, so so your sulfates mainly. So you might have a veggie patch in your backyard where you're using these organic principles, but if you go to sell your produce and you want to label it as organic, you're going to need to jump through a few hoops. Can you walk us through some of the things that are sort of required in that process of labeling something as organic? Well. Probably not the best people to really ask that question because there are certifying bodies. If you are wanting to go as a truly certified producer, each of the certifying bodies will have their rules and regulations and the length of time that takes. And really, they would provide you all the criteria that you need. I mean, there's lots of different levels of it. Local farmers markets will often have things as spray free. But as far as I'm aware, there's not a certification for that. It's really a, a um, an honesty system that you you trust that the grower is is honest in what they're sort of saying. But that's why certified organic uh, carries a premium cost because there's a big paper trail for growers and they have to go through a whole audit process and that's really does vary with the certifier. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I suppose in our situation, we, we use inputs. So we have to check the, get, get all the inputs checked 
through obviously analysis and then get them passed through the certifying body before we can actually use them. So our main thing is always to look at any chemical residues. That's probably the way organics is going to go. Instead of calling it organics, they're going to be calling it low residues. So it's checked for any heavy metals or any pesticide residues, you know, such as organo, those really persistent ones like organochlorines and organophosphates that we used to get used quite regularly. So that's as far as we go, we're concerned, that's what we mainly look at. But yeah, if you were actually growing in directly in soil, you have to go over a period of, I think it's about three years of regular testing to check the soil and the residues that are, are left behind as you operate. So after about three years of growing and regular testing or analysis, then uh, the certifying body will allow you to call yourself certified. So I suppose, mm. yeah. And I suppose as well, if you're growing veggies in the soil and your next door neighbor's spraying chemicals, that can also affect your sort of certification. Exactly. And that, that's why you have to do that regular analysis, Just keep sending it off to a lab, see if it picks up anything that's either ran through, you know, come with water or any of the inputs you've put in there or overspray or anything overspray like that. from your neighbours. But there's also rules yeah. and regulations about what do you call it, like uh, zones, barriers and things like that as, as far as how far away you can have a certified organic crop next to a conventionally treated crop. But again, the certifying bodies have their own uh, stipulated rules and regulations for all of those kind of things. And, and it's quite strict. And again, that's why there are those costs with certified product. Whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, I suppose really it comes down to if the consumers want as good a guarantee as they can possibly get that things have been grown in a particular fashion, then there has to be that accountability and that audit trail. So until such time as we can come up with a better system, I think it's probably yeah, the best we can do. Mm. You mentioned that there are multiple certifying bodies that people can go through. Which certifying yep. body do your inputs go through? We use NASA, the National Association of Sustainable Agriculture Australia, and they are one of the biggest ones. There's Australian Certified as well, and there's a couple of other smaller ones that are coming up through the, through the ranks now and growing because cost is always a big factor for any producer. So if companies are able to give them a level of certification and it's not going to cost, you know, a huge amount of their annual profits, then I guess they're always looking for options to do that. Right. So I guess we can sort of treat organic as a bit of a philosophy almost. It's not necessarily a rigid structure depending on who you're talking to. Well, totally depending on who you're talking to really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people think, you know, washing vegetables, you know, is considered, well, in, in an extreme <laughs> case, is you know organic, but it's yeah what what's actually in the uh, in the cells of the the plant that you want to find out what residues are there. Hmm. So what are we talking about in terms of benefits with this organic philosophy? Well, I guess it comes down to again the trust aspect of as a consumer, if you're buying a product that you're wanting to feed to your family, 
and you want to try and minimize any exposure they may have to chemicals and things or heavy metals, as Paul was saying, then that's what people are looking for. They're looking for as close as a guarantee as they can possibly get in the way that their food has been produced. So I guess that's the benefits uh, of it. And how about environmental benefits? Oh, well, yeah. There, therein opens a huge subject when it comes down to to regenerative. Okay, if I can say it properly, you might and edit that regenerative. <laughs> I can't. No, you might even need to say. It. You know what I'm trying to say. The farming side of things, where people are actually uh, honouring and looking after the soil, they're being good soil stewards rather than it trying to be based on economy. And, and it's always been a balancing act. And a lot of farmers really do care for the land, and they understand that connection to it. But at the same time, there's also the economics of it, and for generations, unfortunately, they've been pouring superphosphate and all sorts of things into the soil. So yeah, definitely, if people are becoming more aware of looking after the soil and treating it, as Paul was saying, as a living thing, then that's going to have huge benefits, I think, for environment, for sure. Mm. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, this is probably the, the biggest reason I, I'm into the organics is really the effects of on the environment, because you're always dealing with water, um, you know, basic elements, and they run off the property, they run deep into the soil, they get into the aquifer. If you've got long-lasting heavy-duty chemicals in the water that's coming off your land, it, it has a dramatic effect over time. There's, you know, we just have to look back at a history. There's whole ranges of documentaries on you know, mm. spillages of DDT in the mm. in the sixties, in the many late well, especially in England and the US where, you know, it's totally destroyed the whole environment. You know, you're having uh, weird effects on fish and and frogs and those sort of things where it affects their reproduction. So there's you know, you can't foresee those sort of things until they actually happen. So I always find organics is the best way to approach it. It's easier. It's a lot less headaches. You're already following a, a natural system. You just, you know, it just involves doing the research and understanding that the way that system works and try and work with it, I suppose. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and your soil products are organically certified. So I guess you're not growing veggies, you're actually making soil for other people who are growing plants. We grow veggies when we can. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So. For yourselves? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we're gardeners mm. ourselves. That's really how we got into mm -hmm. it, I suppose. So yeah, but yes, we, we're trying to help people have success as much as we possibly can so that they become gardeners and earth carers too. You're going to have organic inputs into your soils as well. Now, soil particles aren't actually organic, are they? Well, again, it depends how you look at that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, that, I suppose the it's what, again, what we're looking at is not about identifying carbon-based material. We're looking at low residue material. So mm -hmm. if we're using sand and those sort of things, we, we have to get it tested. We find out where it comes from. Is it, you know, ethically sourced? Is it, you know, as ethical as possible? And we test it. We test it for residues of heavy metals and, or, you know, a whole range. We, 
it's quite scary when you talk to lab technicians and listen to what they tell you <laughs> about chemicals that you can't even pronounce. Like, uh, but there's there's math, there's you know there's, we get papers that have reams of just lists of chemicals that we have to get tested for, and mm. yeah, it's quite scary what's what's actually what can happen. So yeah, it's. It's an ongoing thing. It's uh, it is a it is something that does take time, and that's why you pay a premium, like Linda was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's no point in an organic gardener going out and buying sort of soil that has all chemicals in it because they're just going to be undoing all that hard work that they've been putting in. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And also, part of organic growing is what I I find is you actually start. It's, it's quite different at the beginning when you actually start your process. It's rather, compared to conventional agriculture anyway, you sort of, it's a different state of mind that you start with at the beginning. You, you mm. find out what you've actually got there. I think you might want to ask those questions later on, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's also, um, a question of, yeah, it takes time to uh, to try and get an ecosystem, which soil is. Soil is an ecosystem. Um, mm. it, it's a bit hard to import it all and, and get it cranking from day one. You have to build things in, in get the conditions right. So, yeah, it's not an overnight sort of thing, but it definitely happens. And if you can build it to a, a degree, we aim to almost have the system as a closed-loop system and almost self-sustaining if possible. Mm with as little human intervention really as we can get. Yeah, you've always got to remember this is a natural system and, yeah, like Linda says, you, you want it to get better and better as time goes on. So that, mm. that's our goal at the business here is to try and create that for people where they can have success as soon as possible and then they've got a system that can, can be continued on with possibly their own efforts and you know their own inputs over time so theoretically they have to do less and less but get more and more it's it's a big ideal but it can happen it, yep. theoretically it is yeah. possible so but it just needs time and application mm. and i guess when we're talking about organic things as well this is going to include how we deal with pests as well Exactly, yeah. The the ideal is starting where you get it you get the right minerals, you get the healthy plants in there that are well mineralized, that there's minimal pest attack. Often pests are a sim a symptom of the the environment around them, mm-hmm. like they're either not getting enough light or they're you know, they're too heat stressed or wind stressed, you know, those sort of things. So if you want to try and create the right environment. I always say gardening is uh, one third the soil, one third, you know, the gardener's application and one third the environment around it. If you look at it like that, mm. then you can sort of manage the different areas. Yeah, because pests are often opportunistic and they will look for weaknesses and, and uh, go for the easy targets. So often, as Paul was saying, it's a bit of a, a symptom really mm that there's something in the bigger picture that's not quite in balance. Not always the case, but often it is. So if your plants are healthy and they've got a good cellular structure, they're going to be uh, less susceptible to the pests in the first place. 
And that can be a really tricky thing for gardeners. And we've seen it. Uh, we did a little bit of a, a program a couple of years ago now where we picked people from different suburbs around the city and they all were intentionally growing over a season the same thing. So we could do a little bit of a comparison. And we found that those that were in the new suburbs, like new housing estates, had by far and away the most pest pressure in their vegetable gardens. And I put that down to the fact that in the new suburb, there was less trees, so less birds around. So of course, birds have got a huge role to play in keeping some of the flying pests out of your garden. So it's a mm. huge big snowball effect and it just doesn't come down to one insect pest. It's a uh, it's an ecosystem again. Mm, absolutely. And if we're talking about organic gardening as sort of a way to try and replicate nature, pests actually play a role within that natural system, don't they? They do, yeah. They're usually a number of lectures I've been to with uh, people that are growing um, you know, in agriculture or horticulture that they talk, if you're, if you're getting pests, especially things like aphids, they tend to hone in on the weaker plants, so it's just natural selection. If you sort of see those sort of pests as rubbish disposal, oh. they're, <laughs> you know, it's like a, any predator picking on the weak, the, the old or the, you know, the sick, and you, you've got to, well, try and look at it, like what's happening? Why are they attacking this plant? Why have they, you know, started on this particular plant? Sounds kind of ideological, but mm. it's it's the it kind of the approach you, you you go about it, and you you often can find ways where it's you know like I said before, it's usually sun. Look at the real basics: is it water mm. stressed? Um, check the water. Is the soil holding water? Because if it can't hold, if the soil can't hold basic you know a basic amount of water, it's the plant's going to be unable to get the minerals that it needs. Or the, the decaying process isn't going to be able to happen in the soil. So there's no, you know, there's not enough biology in the soil because plants are really relying on that biology activity where, where the food chain's happening and, you know, predators are eating herbivores and they're eating the, you know, the, the plants in the soil. Yeah, so insect pests, as Paul was sort of trying to say, I think, is that they are, they're part of the whole food chain, they're part of the cycle. Mm. And if you come along and knock out all of the aphids then you've got nothing that the some of the other predatory insects would would have as part of their diet so you're going to have less of those around as well so we've seen it again mm -hmm. does take time takes usually several years for a garden that is managed organically to kind of get in balance like the first few years you tend to have a lot more pest pressure but after that it tends to be a bit less of an issue because the good guys come in because there's the food sources for them Mm. It's often, often an indication of lack of uh, particular minerals such as calcium, you know, the real structure plant elements. And also when you're starting with a new soil, the biology's got to build up. So you've got to get the different levels of predatory creatures and, you know, it's the, it, the soil food web's got to build up. So it, in, in the sand in Perth, it's pretty empty. If there's no plants growing around in, in the actual sand, there's nothing for the biology to start feeding on. So, you know, it, it takes a while for that to build up. Mm. So it sounds like you're saying the first way to get rid of pests is to build healthy ecosystems and build healthy plants. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what and about if it, our 
listeners already have pests and they're sort of not at that three, four year stage yet. Let's say they have a chili plant or something like that and they have aphids on there and they're sort of thinking, yeah, that's all well and good, but I need chilies this year. Sure. Well, one of the biggest problems that we face here in, in the retail environment is when people have got pest pressure and something's been eaten, they'll come in and they say, oh, I've got bugs in my veggie garden and they want something that's going to get rid of the bugs. But then you mm. ask them, well, what's attacking them? What's doing the damage? And often they can't tell you. And as mm-hmm. an organic gardener, really, if you're going to be doing some kind of physical pest control intervention, you need to, number one, know what your enemy is or who your enemy is because it's quite a different treatment uh, for, you know, say for snails and aphids or caterpillars. So the first thing I'd encourage people to do is take the time and do the detective work. So, And that can involve going out at night and multiple nights even with a torch in wet conditions, dry conditions, and really getting down even on your hands and knees and looking at the ground level, looking underneath leaves, and looking for the evidence because you'll always find something, whether it's the frass or the poo of the caterpillar. You know, sometimes people say, but there's nothing on them. But if they really do go and Mm. look, they can find what's doing the damage and once we know what's doing the, the damage to the plants, then you can come up with the most efficient way of treating them. Okay. So what are some of your favorite organic methods to deal with a caterpillar or, you know, any other sucking or chewing insect? Well, with caterpillars, really the most efficient thing, if you, besides hand picking, because you can obviously go out and mm. collect heaps by hand if you have the time and the, the eyesight to do it, But other than that, really, Dipel, which is a natural bacteria that once it gets into the the gut of the caterpillar, they lose their appetite and they die within a couple of days. And it's specific to caterpillars, so it doesn't really harm any other insect pests. But in saying that, you've got a large number of parasitic wasps around that will come along and lay eggs inside the caterpillar. So if the caterpillar is not there for its life cycle, then the wasps are, have been denied a food source. So this is where you do need to, as we stress, just be a bit careful about the whole biodiversity of pests in your garden. For other things like maybe scale insects or for aphids, well, aphids really you can hose off. That's probably one of the most eco-friendly ways to try because it's only the juvenile aphids that are particularly mobile. Once you've got the big fat adults in place, they can't really move around much. So if you go out with a a hose and get a strong blast of water that knocks them off into the ground, usually they won't find their way back up into the plant and they'll be eaten by other insects or ants or something like that once they're on the ground. But once they are on on the plants, there's something like, you know, your soapy water or your potassium soap, which is particularly good for insecticidal qualities. You could use something like your white oils or your pest oils, I should say, which you can make out of, um, you know, cooking oil with a bit of detergent, a bit of garlic. Mm. There's a few homemade things out there. And, and I'd probably suggest to people to start at the basic side of things, like start with the least harmful recipes or, or methods. And, and oftentimes there are things in your own kitchen that you can make your own treatments out of. And uh, if they're not successful, then maybe you need to bring out the big guns, but try the small guns first. Mm, totally. I've heard of something called diatomaceous earth. Have you guys ever heard of that? Yeah, we sell it. Mm. And that (laughs) you've got to be a bit careful because diatomaceous earth is not actually approved in Australia as an insecticide through the ag vet medical. There's a whole, you know, government um, (laughs) list of of, uh, letters. So 
we're allowed to sell it as a, a soil additive and we're allowed to say that insects don't like it very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't claim any particular efficacy rating or anything like that because of the fact it doesn't contain an approval. And I'm not really sure if that comes down to the fact that it's a natural product and no pesticide or chemical company has got um, the, you know, the rights to it. So therefore they're not going to, they can't keep that as a proprietary uh, information and, and, you know, not share it around, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that makes sense. If the studies aren't there, they can't really, well, you, you shouldn't really probably be allowed to do it, even though through experience you might know otherwise. Yeah, and it's a case of if you sell something as an insecticide, you're supposed to have the the test to back it up, and um, mm. and it's yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit like uh, neem oil here in Australia. There is a neem oil product that we have, and people use it for wide range of insect pests. But if you read the label on it, they do say not to be used for edible crops, and a lot of people sort oh. of freak out because they think, well, <laughs> that's it's a, yeah, exactly, but. Neem again has been is tested and allowed in other countries for use in food crops, including New Zealand. But uh, oh. to my knowledge, in Australia, there's not one company that has submitted the uh, applications and had everything approved. So therefore, the company that is selling it is not allowed again to say it's it can be used on edible crops. But it is in other places in the world, and and I'd encourage people to do a bit of reading. I mean, these days it's very easy to find information and look up the pros and the cons and make your own mind up because I'd rather use something like neem than an old-fashioned thing like you know which is a very heavy duty pesticide but yet that is approved with withholding periods obviously but yeah it's it's sometimes you wonder that's the bureaucracy as much as anything with with how mm. things can and do get through and we may need to blur out the name of that Brand yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do that. We, we, we'll get a nasty letter for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's sure. Had- <laughs> uh, the, the chemical name is iptochlorid or something, and that's like the generic chemical that it's made out of. And that's one of the ones now that's been banned because it's, it's recognised as wiping out all the bees. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the shops are taking it off their shelves for that very reason because it's a systemic insecticide, so it harms everything. Mm-hmm. We had one of our guests, Dr. Peter Ridland from the Melbourne Uni, come on and talk about integrated pest management. And this is a philosophy that's really compatible with organic gardening. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way a lot of the smart growers are going, I think. I think so as well. So, can you guys tell us about any plants that are particularly difficult to grow with an organic sort of state of mind? Mm, probably not. <laughs> Sorry. What was that, Dan? I, my this question here. Any plants that are particularly difficult to cultivate using organic methods? Well, you you did mention uh, grapes there. I suppose uh, because you're dealing with uh, different, what is it? Uh, they have different molds and things that attack them in certain weather. The I would always just if you're not a commercial grower, just try and find mm-hmm. varieties that are less susceptible. It's like mm-hmm. cucumbers, you know they're susceptible to powdery mildews and those sort of things but there are varieties that are less susceptible like green gem i've grown that under sprinklers and all sorts of strange positions in the garden and got good crops so Mm. 
it's again research i suppose it's not always fun answer but <laughs> it's uh, yeah just talk to people especially if there's other other growers uh, that you can get in contact with you might be able to get varieties mm. that you know that you haven't heard of before so it's really mm. about picking varieties yeah that's a genetic method of integrated pest management yeah yeah absolutely always look at your, your the area that you're dealing with make sure you get plenty of sun there's you're able mm. to give them good good quality water and the soil actually holds water Soil uh, water seems to be about ninety nine percent. The problems with that, you know, growing in WA. Yeah. Well, you've got to remember, not all the listeners are based in in WA. Well, that's and, true. Yeah. And it's one of those things I think with <laughs> regards to you know what is going to grow. I mean, everybody's microclimate in their own yard, depending on where they live. They've, you've got the overall climate, but then you've got the microclimate in the backyard and. And the truth of it is that it's not going to suit every type of plant. You might find you can grow, I don't know, chilies fantastically, but that you cannot get a zucchini to grow, which would be a bit odd. But, you know, it, just sort of things like that. So be, be a bit kind to yourself. And as Paul said, yeah, get advice from other people that are growing it. But sometimes you have to be resigned that there are limitations and, and that's just life. That's what gardening's yeah. like. And you'll find some mm. years you'll be able to grow a really good crop of something and then the next year you won't. We've found that ourselves from yeah. time to time. So, mm. again, it comes down to lots of outside factors. And, and sometimes a way to get around that is have veggie gardens in different positions in your garden. True. Mm. So you have a summer garden and a, a winter garden, which can be really effective. It just means that you're getting sun at certain times and shade at, the, at other times. But, yeah, it's, it takes a bit of thought to do that but and a <laughs> bit of processes where everyone likes to put the veggie guard down at the back of the garden and behind the shed. <laughs> used to be a traditional Put the broccoli thing. in, organic broccoli and cauliflower and all those cruciferous things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The difficult ones. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. But if you sort of do a bit of planning and maybe the first year is uh, have a diary or a journal and, and document what you actually do. And if it's a disaster, obviously you've got documentation that tells you <laughs> don't do that again. Try something else. You, with, with the right preparation, I think it always comes down to preparation. Or it, it, that's what I've learned over the years. Uh, if you if you've got the t- if you get in a, at the right time of the year and get the preparation right, then it's usually you're halfway there. You're, yeah, you mm. you usually get success as long as you can keep, get get the water to it and <laughs> you know the right sort of food. But yeah, that seems to be the main thing: bit of planning, bit of preparation, and timing. What do most gardeners not understand about organic gardening, guys? I suppose what I was talking before about, Dan, was that from the start it's not a case of doing exactly the same practices in normal gardening and just replacing your pest control. It's actually, again, a bit of planning. Make sure you're getting the actual right nutrients in the soil. It does take a bit of research and maybe talking to people, but I, I think, um, you know, people's first reaction is to get manure and mix it into their native, their soil that they have and start growing from there. You can get a bit, of, you can get success from there if you have really good soil. My dad 
grew up in the depression. He was really tight <laughs> money wise. So when I when I grew up in England, he never used to put anything in the soil at all. And we used to get amazing broccoli, but that was more luck than anything. If you do that in Australia with our really old soils, it's the main thing you want to do is find out what, what it's actually lacking. It can sound expensive to get an analysis done at a lab, and sometimes you'll need someone to help you uh, interpret that analysis, but it tells you straight away where you should spend you know, your dollars, your budget, basically. Often it, you might not be lacking much, but you might just be totally lacking in calcium or something like that, mm-hmm. and that can unlock all the other nutrients for you. I know up in the hills here in Perth, the calcium is the main nutrient that's lacking. If you get that in the soil, it sort of opens up um, some really good crops for you. That's in my area anyway. That's what I found. Hmm. So that that can often give you insights in where to start. Rather, do get an analysis done if you can, even a fairly basic one. Sometimes uh, labs will give you information about what, sort of preparation you should do to overcome that if you get that. My Uh, comments would be as far as what people don't understand about organics is, again, it comes down to their understanding of organic. And for I guess for us as a company that's put a lot of time and effort into getting testing and getting certification, it really bugs me that there's really no I don't know, policing of your life, of people, everybody can use the word organic. And I think there's not a lot of knowledge of the difference between something that is called organic and something that is certified organic. So I would just suggest that if people are really, really conscious and they're wanting to be very aware of what they are putting in their gardens, that they do look for certified organic products. Or at the very least, like as Paul said, it comes down to doing a bit of research, but find out exactly what's in what they're using and ask questions from suppliers and find out because really without that accountancy and uh, accountability, sorry, and transparency, they might just be buying something that is truly not organic, but it's just marketing basically. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess from, I'd like to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you two questions before this episode's finished where you can plug. But the first one is, I just want to check, do you guys actually ship out to Melbourne at all? The biggest problem we've got at the moment with interstate shipping is just that soils and minerals and things are so heavy. Mm. <laughs> and so freight costs are a problem. We wish we could find a very easy way to handle the logistics because we get inquiries from the Eastern Seaboard, Eastern States all the time. And we can and do ship, but that's the biggest problem is oftentimes the freight is as much, if not more, than the product. Mm, fair enough. So I guess our two cities where we get the most listeners are Melbourne and Perth, but I'm sure that you can recommend our listeners a few of your products who live in Perth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it can certainly help. <laughs> so what do you reckon? As far as what, our products? Yeah, I mean, like, what are your most popular products? What do you recommend the most to people who live in Perth? Well, there'd, there'd probably be. Our veggie mix and our, our soil concentrates. We we make soil concentrates which are well we well, I consider all, all the ingredients that you need to that our soils here in Perth are lacking. So on the coastal plain, you basically got beach sand. We we have a mixes that you can mix into that sand, which can, which will make a silt up 
uh, make a loam loamy soil up. So we use clays, silt, biochar and different composts and then put a range of minerals in that. So they, they work really, they've been working really well. And uh, yeah, they'd be one of the ones I'd highly recommend, especially for growing vegetables. Um, so what is a mineral? Well, it's minerals, <laughs> the minerals we use, well, we, it's a fairly general term for something that's either naturally occurred, like things like gypsum that can naturally occur at the bottom of the lakes, ancient lakes. It is dug up out of the ground at different areas. Some people have aversions to that, but I kind of see it, mm. you know, it's kind of a hard thing. You, you can't actually not do that. Well, basically, so, a mineral is a, is a resource and it's a mined product, isn't it? Usually yeah. sometimes it can be milled or screened, but it's usually in a fairly natural and raw state that comes out of the ground and it isn't highly processed. Yeah, we tend to use a lot of our fertilisers in that state, so they're basic minerals, and mix them into and uh, kind of activate and inoculate the soils that we have. We inoculate them, obviously, with microbes and, uh, yeah, really try and kickstart the food chain so that it breaks mm. down those minerals further, makes the elements available to the, to the plants. Mm. Thank you. And, Linda, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about products that you guys recommend for Perth? Well, we do a big range of different products and, and really the question would be two main things that we always have to ask is firstly where they are because Perth does have a whole range mm -hmm. of base soil types and also what are they trying to grow because a lot of our mixes are tailored for different plant types, whether it's trees or lawn or whatever, slightly different mix of nutrients uh, to encourage the right soil biology. So I'd encourage them just to talk to us about what their, their goals are, what they're trying to achieve, and people can bring in a little soil sample and we will do a pH test and also gives us the opportunity to look at the texture and the structure of that, do a little water holding kind of test with it as well. And yeah, because you've really got to start with organics with what you've got and try and fill in the gaps to improve it. Right, thank you. And one of the links in our show notes will be to your contact page so people actually can easily contact you by checking the links and just clicking awesome. it. Super easy. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Fantastic. So the last question is a place for you to plug something, recommend a charity or advocate for a change in the world. So is there anything else that you guys would like our listeners to know about? Okay. That's a big question, really. Well, I guess it comes down to, you know, we we really – think that you know we got into this because of our I suppose when we discovered permaculture and then sort of organics as a as part of that but it's all about really encouraging people to get in touch with nature that's really what it's all about so whether it's in their own garden or if you haven't got your own garden then a community garden or a, a revegetation group near you you know, all of those things that really put you back in touch with the earth and the natural world and, and all the other creatures that we share share it with. Sounds mm. a bit, you know, warm and fuzzy, but I guess, <laughs> you know, that's where yeah. we come from. Yeah. Mm. Does that answer your question or not really? <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah, you're not the first people to come on the show and sort of advocate for a return to nature, and that's a, something that's really close to my heart as well. So I think that's a beautiful message, Linda. Thank you. What about you, Paul? You got anything no, that you want to tell the listeners about? Um, no, I, I suppose it's the same thing. Um, I don't know, really. Yeah, it's, 
you you're talking about charities as as such or just uh, good causes or anything it's really just what else do you want the listeners to know about um before we wrap the episode up yeah yeah no i i, I think that's gotcha that's pretty much it. so you can answer all the stuff about soil but the the one open it seriously open-ended question is the one <laughs> it's funny sometimes i ask arborists what is a tree and that's the one that gets them it's <laughs> yeah. very abstract yeah it is yeah yeah well, right. there's a really good quote that I like to use and it's just come to mind, but it, it's a quote and I don't even know who came up with it, but it's basically that man owes his existence to six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Mm. And it, that is so true because without the soil, we're nothing. There's no food at all. Yeah. So, yeah, treasure it, honour it, grow it, build it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And don't hurt it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do no harm first. Well, that's all about organic gardening. So thanks for coming on the show, guys. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. No worries. as well. In this episode, we've learned that the organic philosophy can mean different things to different people, but it tends to revolve around using natural products instead of unnatural ones with an emphasis on organic matter. We want to be using compost and manure instead of chemical fertilizers and using an integrated pest management approach without reaching for chemicals to control pests. Look forward to our IPM episode with Dr. Peter Ridland from the Uni of Melbourne, which I've already recorded and will be coming out in a few weeks. If you work for a professional gardening company, send your boss this podcast episode to see what they think and whether they can use these principles for their clients.